Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Well, today is a significant day, not just for us as a local small C church, but for the global capital C church. Today is, as Pastor Michael mentioned, the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And today we join with millions of Christians around the globe as we pray and intercede for our brothers and sisters in the faith who are actively being persecuted, that there are people all around the world who, because they believe in Jesus, are hated by their own countrymen, even by their own families, that they are kidnapped, that they are imprisoned, they're tortured, they're uh, oftentimes even killed by their own family members, that in many uh, Muslim nations and even Hindu nations, that they hate Christian, and Christianity is such a, a shameful thing that they'll do what's called honor killings, and uh, a, a father will kill their own daughter or son just for believing in Jesus. The government ha- doesn't have to do it. Their own family will do it because that is how much Christ is hated Uh, And so we're going to be praying and interceding, God, mercy, protection, strengthen our brothers and sisters. But we're also praying for people who may be feeling the ramifications of past persecution, those that might be grieving because they lost a spouse or a child because of the faith, those that are maybe running from their lives, right, for their lives right now, uh, seeking out refuge in another country, and they're going to live in a refugee camp, unable to get a job, and and just the financial stress of being uh, responsible for uh, feeding a family, but not being able to get a job, and so we're going to be praying for our brothers and sisters this morning, and this morning I've entitled the sermon, Great Injustice, Great Injustice, and I want to talk with you today about the three greatest injustices that are happening in the world today. And this isn't to invalidate other injustices such as racial discrimination or the injustice of abortion or the long list of the horrors that happen on any given day because we lived in a depraved world. But this is simply to emphasize that there are particularly three injustices that far exceed the rest that as valid as those other injustices, injustices are, that there are particularly three that are infinitely more unjust and more deserving of our prayer and our intercession and advocacy. And as we observe the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, the first injustice that I want to talk to you about, of course, is persecution. Persecution. I remember observing IDOP for the very first time when I was 15 years old. I was a sophomore in high school, and my youth group was observing International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and I was in a student leadership program, and because I was a student leader, every student leader got assigned a nation that they were supposed to research that was a nation where Christianity is not welcome, it's illegal to be a Christian, or it's hostile there, and we were supposed to give a five-minute presentation on this country. Well, I was assigned the country of Indonesia, I didn't even know Indonesia existed until that point, let alone it being the fourth most populous nation, the the most populous Muslim nation in the world is in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. 
And, uh, and so as I'm doing research, it blew my mind. It changed me because I, at this point, was totally unaware that there was still persecution going on. I knew the history books, Fox's Book of Martyrs, the Book of Acts, of course, showing that the disciples, all except for John, were all martyred. I knew Jesus, of course, was put on a cross. You know, I'd heard something about China prohibiting communism, prohibiting uh, Christians, but I didn't know that even to this day, people are killed. Tens of thousands of people every single year are killed simply because they confess Jesus. And so this was eye-opening to me at 15 years old, you know, uh, kind of middle-class suburbia, just an American teenager hearing about these things. It affected me in a couple of really profound ways. The first way is it gave me a profound sense of gratitude, right? Like, oh my goodness, we are so insanely blessed that I get to go to a church where I can lift up the name of Jesus without any fear of reprise, of persecution, that I'm able to have Bible studies, that when this city alone, we have 400 churches, we have all these different Christian organizations, Bible translators, literally in Colorado Springs, that you can go to a Starbucks on any given day, and there's probably a Bible study there. That's awesome. That's a good thing. We want more of that. And so I feel gratitude to the Lord. Like, God, thank you that I was born in a country where I have the Bible in my language and that I don't have to hide underground trying to fear for my life or for my children's life as I raise them up in a Christian household. But at the same time, I was also affected because I felt a profound sense of guilt. Of guilt. Because I would, I would look at the reports and say, wow, there are some places in the world where just owning a Bible will get you and your family killed. And then I would look on the shelves of all my Bibles with maybe dust on them or the, the different translations I had. I remember a couple years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, there was a video of uh, some Chinese Christians, underground church, receiving some Bibles for the very first time. So some Bible smugglers go to the underground church and they open this suitcase and everybody in the church is just scrambling to grab a Bible. And at first they're giddy and they're just laughing, but all of a sudden it just turns into weeping. And they're just on their knees, just crying out and they're hugging the Bible close to their chest and, and they're kissing it and they're hugging each other, just saying, this is amazing. This is what we needed. God knew what we needed, that we wouldn't be able to survive as Christians without his word. And they were responding as if it was God's actual words to them, which it is. And that's actually an appropriate response. But then I would see my own life. And I say, why don't I love the word of God that much? I have the Bible, I mean, here in America, we have the Bible in English in a hundred different translations. We have, you can look up on YouTube, a sermon from any given church in the nation, from incredible, amazing pastors and leaders. We have free sermonary resources. We have so many resources, and that, that made me feel guilty. So I'm seeing the disparity, the difference between their reaction, the way they live, and how I live. And worse yet, and to my shame, I confess this to you. I would even years later get literature from Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors or Barnabas Aid. And it would say, a little mailer that would say, hey, for $20, you can provide 20 Bibles to someone in an underground church in such and such a country that doesn't have one. And even after seeing the video, I would throw the mailer away. And I'd go and, and buy myself a $50 video game or an expensive drink at Starbucks 
And I know, of course, those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but just the reality of they are over there experiencing that kind of thing, and I'm over here, and it's a different world. That's the mindset that began to take place in my life. And why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because as we talk about engaging and wholeheartedly standing with our brothers and sisters who are to this day being persecuted, we can have one or two one of two different reactions depending on where our heart is at. If we don't allow God to root out this sense of guilt, what will actually naturally happen is we'll deflect what's going on and we'll turn a blind eye to it and just focus on our lives. That's a natural response when you look at something really hard, really graphic, really grotesque that's happening in the world, the knee-jerk response is to look the other way or it's to self-reference and say, well, it's getting bad here in America. Persecution is coming, so I can't worry about what's going on over there. I need to just focus on what's happening here. I need to lock down what's here. And of course, we know that's not a Christ-like response, and we don't even really want to act that way. It's just the emotions that take place in our heart that ends up being an obstacle to fully engaging with this issue. And so what I believe is that the Holy Spirit, through his word and through seeing things a little bit differently, is actually going to bring us into the narrative of the persecuted church in a way that's guilt-free, but that we can stand with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead of saying, oh, I have it bad in America, we can say, man, these are our examples to live joyfully and endure under persecution. This, that's my brother, that's my sister. And so this morning, I want to go ahead and share about that. Just pray with me. Lord, we are talking about something heavy. And it's real. This isn't something that we're making up. In fact, there are, there are endless stories that we do need to give attention to. But Holy Spirit, we are asking that you would do a work in our heart. I believe, God, that I could come up here and I could rant and rail and say how apathetic we are. And we need to, how could we possibly forget? But God, that isn't going to move the needle in our lives, Lord. We need you, Lord to change our hearts, to change our mindsets, to invite us in to this glorious story, Jesus. Lord, we don't want to engrandize persecution, but we don't want to shy away from it either. And we do want to stand next to our brothers and sisters who are suffering and intercede for them in their moment of need. Help us, God. I can't do that. A preach can't do that. Your Holy Spirit is the only thing that can. So Lord, we welcome you here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're just going to look at one verse. Hebrews 13, verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. In the context of the book of Hebrews, the author has been talking about persecution. And so when he talks about prison, he's talking about people who have been imprisoned for their confession of Jesus as Lord. So remember those who are in prison as though to the degree that you were in shackles, you were in the jail cell with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Hebrews 13 doesn't just give us the instructions of how to respond to persecution when we see brothers and sisters persecuted. It actually gives us the why, the reason that we should stand and feel the empathy for our brothers and sisters. And it's because we are also part of the body. What body is he talking about? 
The New Testament author, the Apostle Paul, goes into great detail in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but also in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Colossians 3.11, Ephesians 2.13 through 17, to talk about this imagery of the body of Christ. And what he was specifically trying to isolate or to communicate is that there are not segmented or fragmented groups of Christians, that we are one body. He says, it's not that there is a racial distinction within the body of Christ. It's not Jew or Gentile. It's not uh, Colorado Springs American and Afghan or North Korean. No, there's no distinction. We are all part of the same body. It's not a distinction of socio-demographics, not educated and barbarian. He says it's not about gender roles, men and women. He says together we make up a new creation, one new man, one new body. And it is the body of Christ. So we actually have a picture of what this body looks like. What does the body of Jesus physically look like? How did he leave earth? Well, we look in Luke 24, verse 39, and Jesus is going to appear to his disciples and say, see the hands, my hands, the holes in my feet, the hole in my side, the stripes on my back, how I was scourged, the impressions of a crown of thorns pressed upon my brow. This is my body. So when we think about the imagery of what the body of Christ looks like, it looks like someone who has been crucified. It looks persecuted. The body of Christ is a persecuted body. That is what we represent. And there is no difference between the Afghan Christian and the American Christian. The Afghan brother or sister, the Christian, is just a much, as much of a brother and sister to me as Pastor Michael and I are brothers in the Lord. Or my wife is my sister in the Lord, right? Or I am to you. We are just equally as a part of the same body of Christ, the same spiritual family. I am their brother the same as I am yours. There's no distinction just because we're separated by thousands of miles. And so when we think about Jesus' body, we have to understand that we as Christians, if we are not joyfully enduring persecution ourselves, the right response is to be concerned about our brothers and sisters who are undergoing persecution as if it was happening to us. That's the imagery of the body because we know that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body feels it. And this was written before modern anatomy and modern medicine but we know that pain is centralized. Pain receptors are centralized in the brain, right? Well, the Apostle Paul literally calls Jesus Christ the head of the body. That means as you are connected to the head, you feel the pain of a different part of the body. He is the connection point. Here's... The sad truth, I know we don't mean this. I'm not saying this to condemn any of us. I think it's a, an ignorance and a negligence thing. Uh, but when we neglect our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, what we're actually doing is we are unconsciously signaling to the rest of the unbelieving world that it's not important to suffer for his name. Persecution was always meant to be the, the final sign, giving your life for the gospel was supposed to be the proof in the pudding 
that Jesus is who he says he is, that he actually did the things he said he did in the Bible and that one day he is going to return for the righteous. It gives great credibility, great glory to God, not when we engrandize suffering, but when we say it's worth it. It's a wise and valuable and precious thing in the sight of God to suffer for your name's sake. That is the, the, the solidarity. That is the strength of my resolve and conviction to believe upon Jesus. People look at that and say, you're willing to die for this? You're willing to have your kids threatened? You're willing to have your homes taken away? That glorifies God and it's a powerful witness to the rest of the world. But when we neglect it and we relegate it to some side issue, what we're unknowingly doing is we're signaling the rest of the world, yeah, that's not important. That's not actual evidence that Jesus is worthy of this kind of worship. And this is a big deal, but it's not the great injustice I actually wanna talk about. Look at Acts chapter nine, verse one through nine. Acts nine, one through nine says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if they found any belonging to the way that was the name, the early name for Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is the incredible story of the conversion of Saul, who was a Pharisee and a vehement persecutor of the church and who ultimately was converted and became the Apostle Paul and the writer of most of the New Testament. And he, on his way to Damascus, he may have thought, I am going to persecute, to imprison, maybe even to murder the followers of Jesus. But when a light shines on Saul and a voice from heaven says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, he didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. This is incredible. We often think, we have in our minds that Jesus went to the cross, he died, and then he was buried, rose again, ascended, and that was the end of Jesus's suffering. That's in our mind. That's how we kind of do it. Jesus is not suffering anymore. But we know through the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a sympathetic or empathetic high priest who knows what it's like to suffer and be mistreated and persecuted. In fact, he was persecuted in the worst way. He is the author of living righteously unto persecution and death. Look at Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, there's a specific day that the Lord has appointed where he's gonna come in power and in glory with his angels and he sits on the glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people of the nations from one 
another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison. And again, the context being in prison, not unrighteously, but righteously. And you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. The great injustice is not actually that we as his followers will be persecuted. The great injustice is not that there are Afghan believers who presently there's Taliban going door to door to drag them out and execute them publicly. The great injustice is not that we would lose our rights here in America, though we pray, God, please, let us be a light to the nations. Get this, the great injustice is that Jesus, the blameless one, the perfect one, in him there is no deceit. He's only pure love. This one who alone possesses immortality, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, is still being persecuted today. That in his mind, from his vantage point, his suffering is not done until that day when he brings justice to the nations. That through our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, he is right there with them. He is obeying Hebrews 13, 3. He feels it in his body. His body bear the marks of wrath for sin. That was the punishment that we deserved. And he gives his life freely and they still persecute him, and they still revile him. This is important because hopefully this changes our minds and it takes the issue of our persecuted brothers as being a side issue like, like Sarah McLaughlin coming and saying, for $5 a month, you can support a child in need, something like that, and all of a sudden we're seeing Taliban, ISIS-K, Haram, governments of the the world. Why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus and I love you and I gave my life so that you would know me. We may not be able to connect all the time like we want to be able to with our brothers and sisters who are going, because sometimes we can't even conceptualize that, but we can connect to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we realize, Jesus, you are still feeling this? You're saying that it's still happening to you? As we connect to the head, he connects us to the pain 
of the rest of the body. It's him first and us second. The second injustice I, I wanna talk about is what I'm calling gospel starvation. Gospel starvation. Just as we see uh, that world hunger is a massive issue, it's an infringement upon human rights that every child, every man and woman should have access to food and we see that that's a horrible thing, we need to do something about that. Well, the Bible says that natural man eats bread but spiritual man does not eat on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That God's word, the Bible, is our food spiritually, specifically the gospel. But that today, all around the world, there are billions of people who are starving, not necessarily of physical food, but of spiritual food, that they do not have access to the gospel. That in the world today, in, in missions, it's called unreached people groups, or UPGs for short, that 40% of the earth's current population live in what is called an unreached people group. It means that they are unreached by the gospel. It's not that they don't know a Christian, it's that they don't know anyone who knows anyone that knows a Christian. They are multiple degrees removed from ever hearing the gospel of how Jesus came to the earth, died on the cross for their sins so that they could be forgiven and have a right relationship with God and he's coming back to enact justice. They've never heard this message. And that is a massive deal as we'll see soberly in Romans chapter 10 verse eight says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Yahweh and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a fact. Verse 14, here are the conditions. How then will they call on him in whom they have not heard? Or believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of God makes it clear that unless the message of the gospel is brought to people, they will never have the chance of believing in that message. If they don't believe in that message, they will justly perish in their sin. They will die of star spiritual starvation. And we know from 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, not even one. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, we'll pull it up on the screens, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He's giving you a window, a chance to repent and believe in him, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what the word of God is soberly communicating is this, 
that much of the world has not yet heard the gospel and they cannot be made right with God because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. That it is the name of Jesus that was given to men and the only name that we can be made right with God. But how can they believe in a Jesus whom they have never heard about? They can't is the, the rhetorical answer here. And how are they going to hear that message in some, unless someone goes? And so soberly, and, and it just, it breaks my heart. It should break all of our hearts. And we ask God, give us compassion for this, that there are 2.2 billion humans, people that God made in his image. He knows them by name. He knows the hair on their head. He cares about them. And they will never once hear about the gospel, how God made a plan to rescue and save them. They'll never hear about it. And this might be because of the persecution of hostile nations where it's illegal to be a Christian and, and they, they fight against that message. It might also be because no one's ever learned the language and actually gone to tell them. But I think about an unreached people group like Malaysia, where 18 million Malay people live in Malaysia and there are only 500 Christians amongst 18 million people. That's 0.002% Christian. That today, there are 250 Malay people that die every single day without ever once having heard about Jesus. This is a great injustice gospel starvation that God did everything he could. He came to the earth, died for them. And that news has not yet reached their ears. That there are 2,700 different languages out of the 7,300 that don't have a single word of scripture in their language. We think about today, if you were to go to a hotel or a motel and you were to open up the, the nightstand drawer right there, what are you gonna see? A Gideon Bible. We have 100 translations of the Bible in our language. You can go to Mardell's. You can go to Chick-fil-A. They're playing worship music there. You can go to any church, ask for a free Bible. We have so many resources, which is great. Lord, that it would increase in our country and in our city and in our state and on the streets of Las Vegas. I ask for that. But it's only great if on the condition that we share it with a starving and dying world. When it comes to biblical resources, we are a stuffed people. We have enough. We need to be concerned about everyone else that is dying in their sin justly, but have not had the gospel. This might be oversimplistic, but literally the, the, the thought comes to my mind, why is it fair? How should anyone get the chance to hear the gospel twice until everyone has gotten the chance to hear it at least once. This is a great injustice. And if we care about the things that God cares about, well, we know that his currency is souls. He wants people to know about himself. The next and final injustice we're gonna talk about is by far the greatest. And it is the global poverty of worship. Poverty of worship. What do I mean by that? The greatest injustice in the world today is not that Christians are persecuted, though that is a great injustice. The greatest injustice in the world today is not that people are going to hell for all of eternity without even once hearing the gospel, though that is a great injustice. The greatest injustice by far is that God, even as we are praying for Salem, that God knits people in their mother's womb, 
that he has a destiny and a plan and a purpose for them, that he keeps air in their lungs, he keeps their hearts beating, he causes rain to fall on their crops, he keeps the sun in motion, he loves them, has given himself freely, died on a cross for them, gives undivided attention to them, and by and large, these same people reject and hate him and worship other things as far greater value than God who formed them. The greatest injustice in the universe is that the God who created the universe would set his affection upon a humanity that by and large rejects him. Simply put, the greatest injustice of all time is that God is not worshiped by all. Look at Romans chapter one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth of who God is for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has been faithful to show it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse for although they knew God, Zone in on this. They did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts, which were dark and claiming to be wise. They became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged. That's the crime. They exchanged the truth about who God is for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The greatest injustice of the world is that God freely provides all life. He alone is the giver of good gifts. Every good and perfect thing comes from his hand solely. He's the one keeping people who hate him alive. And he's the one that is constantly trying to draw them to himself. And they revile him. And they worship the gift instead of the giver. They're more obsessed in raising up this image and this idol above God. And they can worship the gift and at the same time bless blaspheme and hate God, the only good one. And this is the greatest injustice because we need to understand, we have to get it in the depths of who we are, that God is not most passionate about our welfare or even humans being saved, though he is. That God is most zealous for his own glory. He is most passionate, even obsessed with his own fame in the nations. And contrary to popular belief, he is not satisfied and contented with a remnant. It's not like he's, he's in the back just saying, hey, I made a way for you to be right with me. And anyone who wants just open invite and, and I'll just have a little party, a little small group to myself and I'm good with that. No, if you read the Bible over and over and over and over again, he says, I will be exalted in the nations, not just to those who believe, but also the unbelievers, that there is coming a day that he is appointed where every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every knee is going to bow in subjection to him. And this is not narcissistic 
of God to desire this? It's justice. Imagine you were watching a movie in which there was a father who is just perfect. He was, he, was, he, was, he was unlike any father that we've ever seen in another movie. Just strong and wise and compassionate and competent. And day after day, he gave his undivided attention to his children and he gave good gifts and he disciplined them when he needed to be disciplined and loved them and cherished them. And his attention was solely focused on them. And these children were brats. And the older that they got, the more they misaligned him the more they slandered against him, the more they hated him until the point where they were fully grown and they end up betraying him and killing him in the most gruesome, grotesque way possible. If the movie were to end like that, on that note where the dad dies still saying, forgive them, I love you, I love you, you're my children, and the kids get away with murder, you're watching that movie, you would be ticked. You would be livid. You would be fuming with indignation that such a good, perfect, amazing, lovable father would be treated in such a way and they would be unpunished and they would get away with it. Okay, we understand we can make that connection, but here's where we can't get that connection. God eternally is only love, is only goodness forever. It is infinitely, exponentially more unjust for God to be reviled against and hated than in that illustration. We can't even comprehend how worthy of worship he is. It's not physically possible for us to comprehend that. And so the greatest injustice is not all the things that have to do with us. It's everything that has to do with him. You think about this, Hollywood where celebrities are propped up and they have People magazines and we're reading about their life and people are more acquainted with the lives and stories of fictional characters like the Avengers than they are the God who created them. That regularly in movies, God's name, his holy name is used as an explicitive and a cuss word. You don't think God sees that? God's word says he's not mocked. He knows that. It grieves his heart. And he has a righteous indignation, a rage that he will one day bring justice where he alone is glorified. You think about football games. I'm not against football. I like football. It's fine. But you think about the thousands and thousands of people that will cram into a stadium. They'll paint their, their bodies orange and blue. They're freaking out, losing their minds about what? About a pigskin inflated with air going from one end of the field to the next. And they lose their minds and it's a billion dollar industry. You don't think God sees that? And he says, that's wrong. There will be justice for that. Isaiah chapter two, verse eight. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to work, to the work of their hands, hands that were meant to just be raised in adoration and praise to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. 
enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up and against the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains, against the uplifted hills, against every high tower against every fortified wall against the ships of Tarshish against the beautiful craft and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day and the idols shall utterly pass away and people will enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the Lord, the earth. There will be a day that the Lord is appointed when he will bring the fullest extent of justice to the world and it will be both great for the righteous and terrible for the unrighteous. But as we await that day, we remember that the Lord is not slow to fulfill that promise of coming justice, but he's patient He's patient towards humanity, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, that all should glorify God. And that is the mission of the church, that we bring great glory and fame and honor to God as we care about what he cares about. Our brothers and sisters, who not only should we be interceding for them because they're being persecuted, but because they are a light in a place full of darkness, that we need to pray for their protection so that they can infect the rest of this idol-filled land. They're doing Isaiah chapter two. They're glorifying God and we need to stand with them in that. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.